are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Shimmering, immersive, haunting. Leah Reed is a New England-based composer of acoustic and electroacoustic music. Her recent awards include the International Alliance for Women in Music's Pauline Oliveros Prize for her piece Pressure and the Film Score Award for her piece Ring, Resonate, Resound in Frame Dance Productions' Music Composition Competition. She holds a DMA and MA in Composition from Stanford University and a Bachelor's from McGill University. Her primary research interests involve the perception, modeling, and compositional application of timbre. In her works, timbre acts as a catalyst for exploring new soundscapes, time, space, perception, and color. You can find additional information about her work at www.leahreadmusic.com. Great. Sorry, you'll have to excuse my voice. Um, I'm a little... I've got some sort of throat thing going on right now, so I'm super bassy. <laughs> then again, uh, we don't know each other that well, so you wouldn't know that I'm super bassy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, let's talk about uh, your uh, your piece, Ring, Resonate, Resound. Sure. And you say that this piece explores the timbral qualities of dozens of bells. So are these... Are these recorded bell sounds that you're working with or or in the in the spirit of, you know, John Chowning, are these synthesized bell sounds? Right. So I was asked to write this piece for John Chowning's 80th birthday and for the anniversary of Karma and the founding of computer music at Stanford. So I was advised that Chowning was not really interested in hearing another FM piece So I decided to take some of his, the textures and uh, some of the sound qualities in some of his uh, most famous pieces that I admired, and then try to do a fantasy and exploration on them and uh, just, you know, touch on them a little bit, but without, you know, I wasn't going to mimic or imitate anything, just, um, uh, yeah, just playing with some of the things that he had used a little bit. So they're all pre-recorded sounds that I recorded at Stanford, so it's... uh, Dozens of different bell sounds that I found at um, the bells at different antique markets or um, online on eBay or that I've been collecting over the years and uh, finally had enough that I could do something with. And so I chose to um, pay homage by using these different, um, you know, there's about 37 different structural bell sounds in that piece that provide all of the different uh, structural, uh, harmonic, uh, foreground and background for the piece. And then they're combined with different sounds to add to that layer of creating and building new sounds, just like uh, Chowning was trying to do with creating FM synthesis. So you said you've been collecting these bells for for some time. Um, I, I mean, is it just like kind of a hobby of yours? Do, do you just like bell sounds? Is that it? I just like sounds in general. It's not specifically with bells, but I will go to different antique markets or... Um, I mean, growing up in New England, there's a lot of different, you know, I like all the different shops with that, but I'm more interested in finding the different sounds at some of these shops rather than mm-hmm. finding the, the antique. So I'll be banging on the different objects and seeing, oh, does this have a nice resonance? And, you know, there's oftentimes it's not necessarily just bells. When I when I say the term bell, it, it's not 
always an actual bell. Sometimes it was a trash can. Oh, okay. Or a. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like I, um, some of the different bells that I used were actually these giant glass vases that I went into a store mm. and um, tested all the. I think I bought fifteen of them and then yeah recorded the different ones and then decided which ones had the best you know, resonant properties after I recorded them and returned them all. So, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you yeah, know. <laughs> it'd be, it would be a little bit prohibitive to keep all this stuff, right? Yeah. I, I have, uh, you know, boxes full of different unique sounds that I want to keep working with, but sometimes with things like that, yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah. One-time use. Yeah, one time my wife, uh, she was at a thrift store or something and brought me back. I don't even know what this thing was. It was like, some industrial thing that could uh like stamp some sort of something onto something mechanical but it just made like these clicky clacky sounds which was awesome so she's like i just bought this for you you know maybe you can (laughs) use it maybe you can't it was pretty cool (laughs) myself i like i i've been since moving to well even before moving to china but especially since moving to china i've been collecting um the tibetan singing bowls oh yeah which are, I mean, they're they're very nice, and actually, you know, just just like you, I'm I'm always trying to find a way to use this stuff because I just like the sound so much, and they're kind of fun to have, you know, just as just as sound creating devices. In your in your notes for this piece, uh, you talked about a multi dimensional tam uh, timbre model. Mm-hmm. Can you can you just describe that? What you mean by that? Sure. So over the past eight years, both during my doctorate and afterwards, I have developed my own compositional model in which the color and texture of available sounds are derived from multidimensional models of timbre spaces. The goal for creating my own compositional timbre model was to find a way to allow the perceptual properties of timbre to address and control any aspect of a composition across multiple dimensions. For my own works, I propose a set of two interlocking spaces or cubes as I like to visualize them. The first cube essentially controls the frequency components of the sound. The compositional timbre space has three dimensions, the first being spectral flux, the second noise to pitch ratio, and the third spectral centroid. The first dimension, spectral flux, measures the Euclidean distance between two spectra, or rather, the change of spectral energy over time. By extension, this dimension can be used to control rhythms or the frequency of pitch changes. This analogy provides a measure of density in time, which is analogous to spectral flux at the intra-event level. So, for example, in my model, a sound with high flux means that there is a high rhythmic activity or that pitches are changing quickly, while a sound with low flux would be one in which there is either low rhythmic activity, or the pitches are stagnant. The second dimension controls the noise-to-pitch ratio and is similar to Sariaho's timbral axis. On one of the axis, we, um, there are sounds that are mostly pure pitch, so that is sounds that are close to sine waves. By contrast, on the other end of the axis, it's mostly noise. And the third dimension in the first cube controls a spectral centroid, or rather, the average centroid over time. And this dimension controls the brightness and darkness of the sound. For example, if uh, the space was evaluating the spectral center, say, for a violin sound, this axis would have four reference points. 
Ponsordino, Soltasto, Normale, and Solponticello, and then every shifting possibility in between. Now, cube one is, however, missing key information, namely the quality of the attack, the dynamic level, and the length of the event entering into this space. So to solve this dilemma, mm -hmm. I use a secondary cube to inform these decisions. This cube works in conjunction with cube one. So the second cube has three dimensions, attack, length, and dynamics. The first dimension, attack, controls how the sounds or gestures articulations are treated, ranging from no attack or a smooth onset to a sharp attack or a sharp onset. The second dimension controls the length of the event, sound, or gesture that enters into the first cube. Mm -hmm. And the third dimension controls the dynamics. Virtually any aspect of a composition can be viewed and decisions can be made based on these two combined cubes. So what's interesting about this model is that the function of each dimension changes depending on the source material inserted into it and the function of the desired result. Mm -hmm. So, for example, right. I could place a sound into the space to learn more about its timbral characteristics, or I could map the instrumentation and every sound I wish to use in a piece onto the space's dimensions and see the possible coordinates. Using this model, timbre itself controls and informs the composition. So I use it to derive rhythms, generate a form, harmony, rate of material, or simply inform the orchestration of, of the piece. So with this model, one can work with any sound or instrumentation. Um, it is, the process is more intuitive than scientific, However, it abstracts the original sound and allows one to base a piece's terrible decisions after an already existing acoustic model. So are you, with, within these two interlocking cubes, are you like plotting, like literally plotting points between, um, you, you're saying following trajectory, so plotting points between the cubes and then the piece is the following of those trajectories through these, uh, through these parameters? Well, so sometimes what I'll do is I'll take an existing sound. And so you, right. can, you can take this sound, and as you start pulling it apart, you can pull it apart to any level. And so it'll prescribe mm -hmm. different elements to it. So, for example, with, uh, with one composition that I have, um, Cloca, I take it and I use a specific sound as a structuring device in the piece. So as I take this one sound, I pull it apart, and all the different frequencies in it become the structuring mechanisms in timetables over time, but it also prescribes the center frequencies that I'm building off of throughout the piece. Okay. And then I have smaller, so that's the macro level of what's happening with the cube, but then I have these um, individual, the micro level, so I have individual trajectories written on top of that. So I like to think of, you can have individual stasis points built into the piece, but I like to think of how things are moving in between time. So you can have mm -hmm. certain sections that are just pointillistic. You're just adapting specific points in this space. But oftentimes what's more interesting is knowing how am I going from point A to point B? How am I moving from this one, how these different parameters are interacting, moving to this space? And so that's what I normally think of in terms of these large scale or micro trajectories built on top of each other. So... Are you, is this, is this more of a kind of an analytical tool for working with real, uh, wor working with real sounds or do you ever kind of reverse the process and kind of create synthetic sounds to then put through these 
parameters. Oh, yes. absolutely. Yes. It's a yeah. way for me. It's, um, it's a way for me to think about all of the, it's a, it's a vocabulary to think about how okay. to structure different sounds themselves as well. Uh-huh. So it works both ways. If I want to be, um, yeah, when I'm trying to create a composition, not, I don't always start with a, a sound in mind. Sometimes I'm thinking, okay, I want to be working with these specific points or these different, um, with this trajectory. And so it can be anything from creating a single sound itself or structuring an entire piece. So you can use it on any level of the composition. That's great. So for example, um, with one of my pieces, Ostiatim, um, I use it to morph material. So sometimes it can be used after the fact to take existing material you have. For example, in that piece, I used uh, door sounds. And I um, end up taking the different the individual points or trajectories and uh, morphing the material to um, adapt to the different trajectories or points that I'm trying to have in the space. So it's just pulling the the different materials apart or focusing on one element of it or just you know modifying it in a certain way based off of what I'm trying to do with the timbre model. You talked. I mean, you you said you were uh, you were commissioned to commissioned to write this for John Chowning's uh, what is it? Right, it was his. It was for Karma's. Uh, what was it? Forty, fifty, eighty, is what his term. Um, I think referred to as Chowning Fest, <laughs> but um, Chowning Fest. Okay, so <laughs> but I think it, the, uh, I, forty, you... fifty, eighty is the official uh, title, I believe. Okay. So you were you were commissioned to write it for 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 Chowning Fest. Well, and, I was asked um, with um to create a new piece for this um okay, event. Okay, you were they asked to create a new piece. Two different alumni. So, yeah. And were you were you drawn to his work before this? Yes, of course. He, I mean, I found uh, being at Stanford, it's hard not to find the story of right. how Chowning found FMs, and this just you know. Yeah, so stimulating and having a composer find something so beautiful and unique and shaping the sounds. I've been influenced by Stanford researchers and composers my entire life, whether I knew it or not. So when I was at McGill, Stephen McAdams was, you know, opened my eyes to sound perception and timbre models to begin with. And um, when I came to Stanford, Jonathan Berger kept, he helped all of the ways that I was describing what I wanted to do with my pieces, he just, he, you know, pushed me to find my own vocabulary and own way of looking at it. Cause I, I was attracted to working with Gray and McAdams, different models and, but I just, or Sariajos timbre axis, but I didn't, they kept, they were limited in different ways. Mainly one knew how to deal with um, noise and pitch and others didn't. It just, none of it had it in one complete package. So the more that I explored with different pieces, I was able to come up with my, own model that works that could describe all of the sounds I was trying to create and uh, so mm-hmm. yes for the whole model with um with Chowning it's very uh very influential for me
So I first heard this piece um, when I was uh, helping doing some judging for the frame dance competition. And uh, in that competition, this piece was awarded the film score award. And I really, 
I really fell in love with the piece at that moment. I think mostly because it has such crystal clear. I mean, it's so crystal clear in terms of its sound. And so many, so many pieces right now, if you went to, I, I mean, we also uh, met up at ICMC. And if you go to that or Seamus or any of these other purely electronic music festivals, a lot of what you hear is just a, pieces that are just a bath of reverb. And these kind of gray sounds moving around a space. And this piece is not that. And I'm just... I'm just curious, um, since since that gray reverby, you know, thing is st- has been or is still being promoted. I guess why why are you drawn to this to these sounds that you're working with and this manner in, in manner of presentation? Sure. Well, this piece was a was more unique to me in that it was uh, a fixed piece. And I haven't really worked in that medium as often. I've normally worked with live instruments. So um, coming at the piece, I, I knew with the the timeline for when I was asked to compose the piece to the performance and what the, um, the technical specifications were that I was given, that this would make the most sense for the time. But I am working with live sounds and working with instruments, you know, the physical aspect of them. That's mm-hmm. um, for me, that's very important. And... So, I mean, I've recorded all of the different sounds. It's not really all that edited. There, I mean, there's not, there's not that much transformation that's happening with the sounds. It's all just a lot of yeah. layering. It's not like I'm using a lot of different effects or things on the sound. So I think that that's probably a difference with what you're hearing. But for me, like being able to then deal with the spatialization, have such intricate control with the textures, with how you're hearing these sounds in space, with... Um, with how I'm building the sounds on top of each other. So you're hearing them either as one or as a a new sort of hybrid sound or as these sounds that are just happening simultaneously. It's a, it's a wonderful medium to be exploring and that I've been working a lot more with the past couple of years since writing that piece. Um, But for me writing instrumental music and electronic music, it's from the same mold. It's, I, I think about it very similarly. So it's not a different, a change in writing for me. It's, um, one and the same beast. I know, you know, we were talking about bell sounds earlier, and let's talk about uh, just briefly your other, um, another piece of yours called Sparrow, is it Sparrow Sparrow? Uh, yes, Sparrow Sparrow. Okay. Um, the second Sparrow's Sparrow spelled S-P-E-R-O, is that right? Yes. Uh, so, what can you, can you just explain that title a little bit? Um, <laughs> sure. So I wrote this piece as a final piece uh, while I was an undergrad. And so it's for chamber ensemble and live electronics. And the title gets its name from, um, the piece is about bells as well. So um, specifically about one bell, but about a bell from my hometown in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And so the original title of this work was uh, Ringing Across the Field, and uh, it was a template holder. And so this bell, it rings every hour, Um, and my family home that I grew up in is just right across the the wetland from this this meeting house. So this was always in the background of my childhood, and um, the story behind the meeting house is that they could, when they were building 
the original structure. They could hear the cannons firing, and it was during the Battle of Bunker Hill. So for me, this sound is also very political. So at the time, Sparrow was about the, um, the bird Sparrow was about flying uh-huh. across, and um, it's fairly self-explanatory. And then Sparrow, meaning hope, was about the hope of what I was hoping would become in our political future. And so the piece was actually very political. I was campaigning um, at the time, and so it was my hopes and uh, sonified in this composition um, with what I, uh, things that I liked, things that I didn't, and um, built into a structure when I was um, in completing my undergrad at McGill University. How did those political hopes turn out? Well, that's a, another conversation. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay. We'll yeah. just leave that. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to hear two clips from Sparrow Sparrow. Uh, can you kind of set up the first one? The first clip is taken from the beginning of the work, and the second clip is from around three minutes into the ten-minute work.
So let's talk about occupied spaces. Sure. Uh, after reading the notes for this piece and listening to it, I have a lot of questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess first, maybe it would just be a good idea for you to kind of explain explain the work i guess sure so this was the one of the capping pieces in my dissertation at stanford and in the piece i was exploring timbre through a series of 11 rooms or spaces or more specifically the concept of timbre in space so in this piece uh some of the different spaces that i'm working with were modeled after physically existing rooms. Others were either imagined or um, incur inside um, one's head. So I used uh, different impulses that I then filtered through these rooms. So I had a zipper, a clap, and a balloon pop that were then filtered to varying different degrees as they moved through these different spaces. So for example, so one part of the piece, um, you'd have uh, just a single frequency maybe from the clap, the balloon pop, or the zipper. And then um, uh, later on, it would just keep building uh, the different partials um, as the piece progressed and it it went through these different spaces. Um, So so this was uh, a literal, you know, experiment going going into a room and taking a zipper and making a recording and then analyzing that recording. Actually, I took different impulse responses for some of the different rooms. Right. Yeah. And then, okay. yeah, so a lot of this was done digitally. So what I would do is I had these three different impulse sounds. I had the impulse responses, and I would filter. I would put the, the sounds into these different rooms and then analyze the different qualities that came out, the different rhythmic qualities, the spectral okay. qualities of how it changed the different sound, um, uh, any other, you know, the, you know, characteristics that I could be using to... Uh, describe or transform these different sounds and then that went into creating these different um, these models that I then used to transform the different impulses um, acoustically so as the different okay theme would run through the different rooms it would modify it and um, you know transform it based off of these different spaces trans transform how I mean, based on pitch content or based on uh, timbral coloring, because you're working with two pianos and two percussionists. So in terms of like morphing the sound of those instruments, I feel like those instruments have less, less that you can do through time that than maybe like a violin or a clarinet or a flute or something like that. Sure. So what essentially happens is you have, um, I was exploring NED and the different um, uh, echo density. And so all the different individual components of these different spaces and rooms. And so you have the, all these different reflections that are happening. And so you're focusing on the clarity of the sound, the focus of the sound, the blur of the sound. And so these are different elements you can okay. be choosing, whether you're describing um the instrumentation. So each room had a specific instrumentation. It had different reflections, so it would have different rhythmic content sometimes, or it would color the sound, so it would add different, um, either fixed or transformative, uh, you know, uh, harmonics that, or different okay. uh, 
pitch material that would be added to whatever the base material was that was being inserted. So essentially I had this stream of one material running through that was being, it was sort of a theme and destructive variations. So each time it would present itself, it would kind of disintegrate and loop on itself and um, the different rooms would start overlapping on top of themselves and they deteriorated. So the piece becomes very, starts very clear with these presentations of rooms. And then as the rooms start compiling and overlapping on top of each other, and basically it's a feedback loop. So there's all these different, the, um, the different echoes and everything start multiplying so much that it just disintegrates completely the whole, um, the whole structure until you just build up of noise in the background. Is there a connection between the idea for these rooms and the um, your interlocking cubes from Ring Resonate Resound? Oh no, this is the same model. This is the model I work with all my pieces. <laughs> so um, okay, yes, but of but just like, but I, I understand that. But just the the concept of the cube. Oh yeah, well that's part of with working with it is having then. I've been working with timbre spaces. So with this piece, uh-huh. the idea of working with uh, timbre in space, so physically right. having these individual spaces that were being the compositions themselves, it was a different way of focusing on the material where you're transforming it. It was a, a different level of approaching the cube that I hadn't um, worked with before. Right. Around, okay, so... Uh, let me get let me get back to my list of questions. <laughs> um, so the zipper, the clap, and the balloon pop, those are the actual ju- those are the actual sounds that you took the impulse responses for the the real rooms. But are those also musical gestures? Yes, exactly. The- yes. Yeah. So they have. I end up structuring a different um, a different theme, and that each of the different elements have their own different yeah, gestural materials. So the zipper is a longer type of gesture, and then the clap and the balloon pop, they're just specific. They're, they stay short, and um, but they have their own you know, gestural characteristics that are always very um, related to the, you know, to short staccato type motions in general. Mm-hmm. So the, the zipper you don't hear as often in the piece. That's only... Um, partway through the work, um, and it acts as sort of this destructive mechanism um, towards the middle end of the piece. Um, so you mostly you have a lot of this A B form of the theme with the the clap and the balloon. Around the sixteen minute mark, um, there's a truly eerie moment where the pianos are using uh, the ebos. And oh, okay. it it reminded me of and and don't take this the wrong way, um, but it reminded me of a scene uh, from Apocalypse Now, the film. <laughs> um, have you have you seen that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it's Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando, and it's it's the climactic scene where uh, Martin Sheen has just killed Marlon Brando, and the visuals are incredibly blurry. And all the background sound, the you know, the ambient sounds uh, are completely gone. And all you're left with is this electronic score. And, it, I mean, obviously your piece isn't about killing anyone. But um, <laughs> it, was, it was really that, that, that image of something just being blurry, you know. And 
I don't know. There was there was something about it that really struck me in that moment with the with the pianos and the ebos. Oh well, thank you. That was you know you captured the essence of what I was trying to create with the end of the piece. So in that final section, we have one final room, which we've only now heard one time, which is room number eleven, and then it um, moves into this. I, I like to term it a resonant soup and a ghost of the previous impulses. So you have just a basically a coda of what's happened before and then just this mm-hmm. this soup of all of the different materials that have um, we've heard previously.
so this is for percussion. I used to be a percussionist. Um, for percussionists, this is a fairly famous instrumentation, you right. know, with with Bartok and Crumb being the standard classics of the two piano, two percussion instrumentation. Was this piece in any communication with those at all? Well, the piece was written for the ensemble Yarnwire. So they, right. um, of course, um, that's part of their repertoire. Sure. And so, uh, and I've, I did do research on the the staple pieces for the repertoire, but in terms of trying to ha- having had an influence on the work specifically, no, not particularly, except for being aware mm-hmm. of the other pieces and understanding the way that they they work, and right? Whatnot. So I'm interested in. I mean, this this is for a very specific ensemble. Has has Yarnwire um, done this piece a couple times, or? You know, we just did it the once, and I have been meaning to contact them again about this. Um, so we shall see. They, at Stanford, we would hire uh, different ensembles to come mm. to Stanford to perform our works because there is not a performance department. And so we would have these fantastic right. groups come. But, of course, we have then, you know, limited performances of these pieces So from when I was in grad school. Right. And I would think that I'm I'm always curious about this this particular aspect of um of composition is the is the duration of a piece relative to the age of the composer because um and I I've talked about this probably too much on this on in other episodes of this podcast already but you know for a composer who's let's just say younger than 50 which I know you are um the durations i you're a lot younger than 50 but um (laughs) i've i think it's interesting that this piece is 21 minutes long because of the challenges that younger composers face when trying to get their music performed not for the first time but for the second or third or fourth time and it seems like you have you know that you might have a good partnership with yarn wire but in terms of getting this piece performed again like what are those what are those challenges just based on the duration that's absolutely a consideration for this particular work i was not worried about that when i wrote it it was about exploring the specific sounds and the concept and it needed time to be able right. to do that and so um you know sometimes i worry about those things with specific pieces that i know that i have my pieces in you know my repertoire that that are meant to be, I know that they're going to, they have the likelihood of being performed many times and that, you know, that do get that um, type of exposure. And then I have other pieces where it's just, it's not the same, but they're really important for my progression as a composer. Right. And, and I, I, I feel exactly the same way where there, I, I have these longer pieces where I'm like, you know, I spent so much time on this and it's really important to me but the sheer duration of it just limits the amount of exposure it can get. And it's it's always this like, you know, it's this give and take with you know trying to figure out, well, should I should I be safe and write you know the seven or eight minute piece that can easily fit on a festival program, and right. you know something like that, or should I like really go for it? And more often than not, I've just decided to go for it, <laughs> which right. is probably not the best idea. <laughs> You know, to like, I've I've been thinking about this recently. I was like, God, I, I really need to write like a seven or eight minute piece just to get back into that circuit of things. Absolutely. So, uh, 
last question, and it's it's the the big question. Um, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue hmm. for your life? Well, that is a long story as well. <laughs> I've actually known <laughs> since I okay, was good. a child. Um, I love long stories. I was born to a family of two artistic parents and uh, grew up in a, a small town in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And I've always had a passion for music. I, uh, I remember when I was five years old, uh, a string quartet came and played in the classroom. And I was so taken with how beautiful the string instruments were that I, when I went home, I told my parents that I wanted to play the violin. So they asked me what a violin was, and I did my best air impression. And so that same afternoon, they took me down to the local music shop and uh, outfitted me with my first violin and signed me up for lessons. So I started playing and studying when I was five and uh, took off from there. I began singing when I was in middle school, and I had um, I was always cast in these large roles in uh, the school that I was attending and would always have the, the solos and choir and got involved with the Raylan Moore Opera Company. They cast me for my first role when I was a child um, in the Magic Flute, which was a fantastic opportunity for mm. actually working with professional musicians. And I stayed with that company um, until I went to high school. And uh, they were wonderful about involving children and getting them involved with music. Um, I first composed when I went to the Walden School which is a fantastic composition and music camp, which is located in Dublin, New Hampshire. And at that camp, I wrote my first two pieces, uh, had them performed, recorded, and critiqued, and that was enough to get me into a performing arts high school, Walnut Hill, where I was a composition and voice major. And that's located in Natick, Massachusetts, and it's the preparatory school for New England Conservatory. And from there... Went to the Schulich School of Music, where I majored in composition with a concentration in voice, and then Stanford, where I received my MA and DMA in composition. So, what are you? What are? What is the next project for you? What are you working on right now? Sure. So, this past year, I have been working on my timbre space and focusing on elements that I wasn't able to get through. Um, during my dissertation, more specifically, how to handle uh, the treatment of the human voice. Mm. So this past year, I have been experimenting and writing pieces that examining um, working with text and theatrical components of working with singers. So I have, um, with dealing with this, you have the instrumental components of working with the human voice, but this the text element needs to be treated separately and how do you do you treat it separately, but also together? It's an added component that needed to be carefully viewed and structured into this different system. So I've spent the past year developing different pieces, and uh, one of which was just um, premiered in May by Accordant Commons called Single Fish, another which I'm uh, about to finish called Apple, and then I'm working on a new piece with them for um, electronics and voice, um, which is yet to be titled, but they all use the poetry of Gertrude Stein, um, her tender buttons. So, um, and I've been working with spatialization as well, um, learning different diffusing techniques and ambisonics. And I just spent uh, a week down at Virginia Tech in the Cube and mm. uh, 
so have been writing many new pieces to um, learn to n- new techniques and associated with that. So awesome. Where can people find you on online? Yeah, please visit my webpage at www.leahreadmusic.com. And are you are are you on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or anything like that? <laughs> you can find me on SoundCloud. <laughs> okay. Okay. I haven't joined Snapchat yet. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It will get everyone eventually. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Leah. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.